Our passage today comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you'll pray with me. Dear God, we come before you today, grateful that we can gather together as a church family and learn from your word. We praise you for what you have done in our lives and what you continue to do. We know that you alone have the power to change hearts and renew our minds. Today we pray that you will bring new life to our fellow men and women all over the world. We pray that you will grow your church and give your church opportunities to share your grace and mercy with others. Thank you for the new life you offer and the good news of the gospel. Please be with Pastor Jeff today as he shares your word with us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, Teresa. If you have a bulletin today, you can open it up, follow along with my message on that inside panel there. We are starting a new series today, which I'm really excited about. It's called His Workmanship. So between now and Easter, really now between, uh, between now and uh, coming up on Easter, we're going to be looking at what God has made us. What does the Bible have to say about how God has made us? and what we're made for. So we're going to be looking that, at that in this series. Today we're talking about being created in Christ Jesus and what we're created for. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we will mostly be in that passage today, verses 1 through 10. I was listening the other day again to the testimony of my favorite scholar, theologian. His name is Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, for those of you who don't know who he is, you can find him on reasonablefaith.org. He's a Christian philosopher, scholar, apologist, and I just love listening to his systematic theology lectures. Pretty much every day when I work out, I just listen to those, and uh, he was telling the story, actually, about how he got his PhD, how he got his doctoral degree, and so he had graduated, I think, from uh, either Trinity or Wheaton College with a master's, and he thought, man, I'd really like to go into that field. I'd really like to go into this field and become a scholar and, and be a practicing scholar, uh, but he had no idea, he had no money, he had no idea how he was going to get a PhD, how he was going to pursue uh, that work. And so he found out, he and his wife found out that there was a really prestigious uh, university in Europe and that they took a very select few students and that in order to get into the program, you had to write a proposal, what you were planning on or proposing to research and also, you had to write this letter and telling them why you felt like you were worthy. And the American seminary system is very different, though. You usually sign up. They take pretty much any warm body with a good GPA. And then you spend two years kind of in classes. And then at the end, your last classes, you make a proposal. And that will determine whether or not you get candidacy and things like that. But in that system, you have to make the proposal first. So he had to do all of that. He sent it away thinking, I'll never hear back from them. So he and his wife, Jan, just prayed each and every day, committing it to the Lord. Well, they did hear back. And it turns out, miracle of miracles, he was accepted into the program. And listening to him tell the story, he just says, man, it just almost knocked us off of our chair. Like, have you ever had that experience where the very thing that you actually prayed for, God said yes where the news was just shockingly good. And, and so I just began to think about, I sat there and I paused that and I just began to think about all the ways in which God has answered prayers for me and Carrie and our family uh, 
all the ways in which he's done so that have just been surprising. That in fact, he said yes, and it just blew my hair back. That his answer was yes. Sorry, Rich, that's not an option for you, but uh, I'm just messing with you, man. Rich knows I love him. So today, we're talking about some news that Paul has for us that's shockingly good. I mean, it's surprisingly good. It'll knock you off your chair, but before we talk about that good news, we actually have to talk about the shockingly bad news, and that's number one on your outline. Paul begins this chapter with Ephesians by telling us us about our hopeless predicament, our hopeless predicament. Listen, if there was ever a hopeless situation, if there was ever a lost cause, we are it. (laughs) Like, we are it. And that's what he wants to start out by telling us is that you, you are more hopeless than the United States legislative branch of the government. Like, you're more hopeless than that. A thousandfold, actually. The, war, the news is so bad. The very first thing he tells us here is that we are dead in sin. That we were dead in sin. He says in verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Now, verses 11 through 14, he, he sort of defines what he means by that. When he talks about spiritual death now, there really are three ideas in a biblical sense that you need to have in mind. So one is physical death. Obviously, in the curse, in the garden, they didn't just sort of eat the fruit and keel over and die. They eventually did die, and the curse of death is the permanency of death, the permanency of our physical death, dying and staying dead forever. So that's one curse. That's one sense in which a person is dead in their trespasses. A person is dead in their sin. Another sense is that they're dead spiritually. I mean, spiritually, you and I had, or we have, we possess a deadened faculty, a faculty that Adam and Eve possessed in all of its uh, facility, right? So in the garden, they could hear the sound of the Lord walking in the cool of the garden. They just could sense God's immediate and manifest presence in a way that you and I, in our sinful state, just cannot do. They were deadened spiritually, They could no longer correlate or communicate with God the way they could in the garden. And we're also dead relationally. In fact, this is such a big idea in Judaism that this is his summary of that. In verses 11 through 14, he says this, So then remember that at one time you Gentiles were in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised. That's a title the Jews calling the Gentiles the uncircumcised. You were excluded from the citizenship of Israel right? And foreigners to the covenants and promise, without hope and without God in the world. For he made both groups one, tore down, uh, and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Listen, what's the worst news I could possibly give you? For many of us today, we would, sit, we would say, yes, it would be the news that someone close to me, someone I love, has passed away. That's the worst news you could get. Actually, it's, it gets worse. I could tell you that you're dead, That's the worst news, actually, that you could receive. And this is the way Paul starts it out, to say you are estranged. You are cut off from the family. You were not members of the covenant family. You had no hope, and you were without God in the world. You had no chance of being saved at all because God hadn't provided for your salvation. And then he says we were dominated by the sinful nature, dead. And then that sinful nature enslaves us. Jesus said this, he who sins is a slave to their sin. 
It says in verses 2 and 3, it says, In which you were previously walking according to the ways of this world, and according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And he says, We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. So what happens when you have this person who is spiritually, relationally, and physically dead in their sins, separated from God, that person lives out their life in the pursuit of the self. They live out their life in the pursuit of me, what I want, my thoughts, what I think is true, what I desire. And they live a life that is dominated by the presence of sin. And then he goes on to say in verse 3, B, that we were damned to wrath and certain judgment. It's probably the worst part of the news. He says, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. What does he mean by children under wrath? Children born into a situation that's already condemned. It's like being born into a condemned building. The building, the walls are falling down around us. The floor is giving way. The pipes are rusted. The infrastructure is crumbling and becoming sawdust through a termite infestation. Right? We are born into a system that's already been condemned, and we are part of that system. And what the Scripture tells us is that we are children by nature of wrath. Children destined already born into condemnation. People love to quote John 3.16, which says what? I hear some rumblings out there. <laughs> Lots of different, I hear King James, I hear NIV, <laughs> right? You know, he's the better. But... Uh, so we all know that verse. Who can quote John three seventeen? No one, right? But I can't either. But here's what Jesus says. <laughs> Essentially, this is what he says. Listen, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The, the person who doesn't believe stands condemned already, something like that, right? That's the paraphrase. We're already born into a system where we are already condemned. Now, now, this is the worst possible news. This is the worst possible news that you and I could receive as human beings. We are dead in our sins. We are dominated by the sinful nature, and then we're damned to wrath and irreversible judgment on the human condition. But then Paul turns our attention to the best possible news. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And now the good news is so good. So good. It's getting up out of your seat good. That's how good it is. Don't do that. But, you, you know, you feel it. And so he talks about God's character here. So, so first of all, when we share the good news, when we talk about the good news, we are firstly and foremostly talking about the God. There's good news about God, right? The best news you can hear about God is this, but God who is rich in mercy. That's such good news to know that we don't have an evil God in the world, that we don't have a God who is turned against us and who hates us and doesn't care about us and lets us go, lets, leaves us to our own devices. But this God is rich in mercy. Do you know anyone who's rich? Are you rich? Raise your hand. Can I? Yeah, okay. So, some of you. When I was a kid, uh, when I was a teenager, I was in the youth group, and I was a, a youth leader within the youth group, and uh, I was on fire for God, man. I love the Lord so much, and I would just tell 
anything that moved the good news of Jesus and how he changed my life. And I was just so excited to share the gospel. And I just remember being in that youth group, and I, I got in with a group of, uh, I don't know, most of them were young ladies, but they, they, uh, they, they liked me. They always invited me out, and we were friends. And it turns out that all of them were people of means. What I mean by that is their parents were kind of rich. And being the kid from the, quite literally, the other side of the tracks, like I would show up in my 1971 Pontiac Granville that was just like, it looked like the Uncle Buck mobile. It was just backfiring and just an embarrassment to even park in front of their homes. And one of my friends, Margo, she, her dad lived in a mansion. And it, this was not like a Mick mansion, right? This was not like just a big house, a, a big sprawling house. This was a mansion. It was a palatial home on 10 acres and we pulled up. She invited us all over for a party. We pulled up. And I was like, what? You live here? I don't need, I'm surely not going to invite you to my house in Lakeside, right? Lakeside, Virginia. And so I'm like, no way. You're not going to my house. And so we go into her home, and I just spent the whole, like, 30 minutes just walking around going, no way. People do not live like this. They had a really nice art studio that was twice the size of my home where her mom would go and throw clay and, you know, whatever. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, this is what it's like to know people who have an abundance, people of means. And that's your God. Your God is rich in mercy. Your God, however bad the deficit is, like however bad the news is, however much you owe, you need to know that your God has excess. Your God has abundance to meet the deficit, the debt that is owed. God is rich in mercy. This is the character of our God. And God's motive, verse 4b, is because of his great love. This God who is rich in mercy and because of his great love that he had for us. That's the first motive. The first motive is that God's motive is his great love. His great love that he has for us. Thank God that God loves us and that he didn't forget us. And then in verse 7, it says, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So his second motivation there in verse 7 is that he might put us as trophies on display. What's a trophy? Anybody have any in your home? Awards, trophies? Yes, some of you overachievers. (laughs) And uh, I grew up getting football trophies, and I would put them out on this big metal desk that I had in my room, and I'd just stack them up, you know, (laughs) all these football trophies. And uh, what what, what did the the trophy signify? It was a symbol of my achievement. It was a symbol of my effort. It was a symbol of what I had done. And God says, I want to put you on display. I love you. God has immeasurable love for you. You can't even fathom how much he loves you. And then once he saves you, he wants to to put you on display and show the coming ages the power of his grace and the power of his love in your life. Listen, whatever you think about yourself, whatever was done to you, whatever you have done, God loves you more than you can know. God loves you more than you can fathom. And he wants to demonstrate and show the richness of his love working in your life. And it's one thing to be rich. It's another thing to express one's wealth extravagantly. A Joseph Leake died in 2003. He left several million dollars to an organization that provided guide dogs for the blind. And that's not unusual. 
People die in their 80s and 90s with leaving their millions to charities all the time. His children were shocked, though, not that he left his money to the guide dogs, but that he had any money to leave to anything. Because as far as anyone ever knew, Joseph Leek was a pauper. He lived in a run-down old house that was falling in around him. He would go watch TV at the neighbor's house so he could conserve electricity. Anybody know anybody like that? Anybody is anybody like that? <laughs> he died a chintzy pauper. He lived the life of a poor man. In reality, he was a rich man. Now, God is not like that. God expresses the extravagance of his rich mercy and shows, puts it on display. How does he display it? By giving us the gift that cost him everything, by sending his one and only son from eternity past to come and die on a Roman cross for our sins. There is no greater expression of the richness and the immeasurable love and mercy than that. And Paul, and Paul says, this is the kind of God we have. We have a God whose character is such that he's rich in love and mercy toward us, and a God who has great love, great immeasurable love. And we learn about his initiative. Don't miss verses 5 and 6. Don't miss this. You would almost be tempted to read right over this. Don't. Look who the subject of these sentences are. He made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. So we were dead. He made us alive. You are saved by his grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ. I didn't do any of this. You didn't do any of this. God did all of this. He is the one who has taken the initiative to create us and then to redeem us, and then to call us and bring us into the kingdom of his marvelous light. He's the one that made us alive. God is not in the business of rescuing drowning people. I like what Pastor Ryan says. God is in the business of rescuing people who have already drowned. God is in the business of going out and finding the people who are already dead, already condemned, already children of wrath, in condemnation and judgment, and then rescuing them and bringing them back to life. Have you ever thought about yourself as already seated with Christ in heavenly realms? I almost never think about myself like that. I think I should more often. I mean, the way that God sees you, God is so confident, right? Like, God just knows that this is true about you, that He can declare it as a done deal, You are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. You say, oh man, I feel emotionally, I'm just out of sorts today. Okay. You're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. Oh man, my arthritis is just killing me, which it is. You're seated with Christ in heavenly realms. The answer to that prayer request was no. But you're seated with the Lord. You have been raised with Christ in Christ. And God has taken the initiative to do this for us. Number three, then Paul tells us about the means of our salvation. The means of our salvation. This is what verses 8 and 9 are all about. And so means has to do just with the wherewithal. God is the one who provides it. What does he say? By the means of God's grace through the instrumentality of faith. We are saved by the means of God's grace 
through the instrumentality of faith. What do we mean here? Well, he says, for you are saved by grace through faith. Grammatically, the phrase by grace is what we call a a dative of means. So it should be translated by grace. And the word dia, from which we get the word diagram or things like that, is the word uh, conveys instrumentality. We are saved by the storehouses, the wherewithal of God's grace that He has provided for us, and it's administered through the instrumentality of faith. So you have to have three things to have a saved person. You have to have the means. Put this up on the screen. God God alone provides the means of our salvation. This is an act of free grace by the initiative of God. You and I have nothing to do with this. This is just God out of His own goodness out of his own mercy provides it. And then you have to have an instrument, an apparatus, a delivery method. So God administers this gift through the instrumentality of faith, which is trusting reception. Write that down. Trusting reception. This is what faith is. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 1.12. This is what John is talking about when he's talking about Jesus. And he says that all who believed in him and all who received him had the right to be called children of God. Who has the right to call themselves a child of God? Those who believe in Jesus and those who receive him. This is about trusting reception. So you gotta have faith. Then you have to have agency. You have to have an agent, a human agent, who can express faith. This is obviously not God. God doesn't express faith. Why would that be? Because he doesn't have faith. What does it take to express faith? You have to believe something you don't know. You have to believe something that you don't, in fact, know beyond the adventure of a doubt to be the case. God can't do that. God is an omniscient being, which means that he knows only in all true propositions. He holds no false beliefs because he doesn't know anything that turns out later with more information to be wrong. (laughs) God knows everything there is to know. And so God doesn't express the faith. You do. You're the agent. So you have to have these three things. You have to have the means of salvation. You have to have the instrument. It has to be administered somehow. Now, it's not administered now by circumcision and kosher diet and Sabbath observance. In the New Testament, these Gentiles need to know the New Testament era, it's by faith. That's how you receive it. And you are called to answer the calling. You are charged with obedience to this faith. And next, he tells us, not through the instrumentality of works. So, it is through the instrumentality of faith, but it's not through the instrumentality of works. Verses 8b and 9a, he says, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not from works so that no one can boast, not from works so that no one can boast. So, this doesn't come from you. Nothing comes from you. You're not responsible for any of it. God is the one who created you. God is the one who ordained you to be in the situation that you are in. And God is the one who has provided for your salvation, our salvation, and provided the means and instrument of our salvation, grace and faith. And now, he calls us to obey. God calls us out of the grave. And so we could take credit for none of that. So this passage makes two things impossible. Two things impossible. First one, it is impossible for anyone to ever take credit or to brag that they had anything whatsoever to do with their salvation. No one will be able to stand before God and say, 
yes, well, uh, I was good between 2010 and 2020. I was a really good person. And I think on balance you should let me in. No. Eh, wrong. Bye-bye. That's not going to get you in. No one will be able to brag or take credit for any aspect of their salvation whatsoever because it's not from yourselves. It doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Second thing he makes impossible here is for anyone to put faith in the category of works. For anyone to teach that faith is actually a work that you do. That God in his grace has just provided you a faith work. No, he says it's by faith, not by works. Which means faith isn't a work that you do. Here's how he says it in Romans 3, 26 and 28. He says, God presented him, Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justified, the one who has faith in Jesus. This is how God justifies us in his courtroom, by faith. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. You can't do it. By what kind of principle? Well, by one of works? No. On the contrary, by a principle of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See, when, when Paul talks about faith and works, those two are mutually exclusive categories for him. So, we are saved by the means of grace through faith as we express our faith and our agency in trusting, thoughtful reception. And then Paul concludes like this. Number four, he says the nature of this extravagant ver- uh, uh, salvation in verse 10 is that we are God's work. So this is why no one could stand before God and claim to be saved by works because you are the work. We are the work of God. He says, for we are his workmanship. Now this word workmanship here is the Greek word poiema. Many have pointed out that this is the word actually in which we get the word, where we get the word poem from. But it doesn't mean poem. You can't read that meaning back into that word. It doesn't mean that. The word poema, as it was used in the first century, essentially refers to functional art. Functional art. What is the difference between functional art and high art? If you go to the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, or you go to an art museum, uh, say, in uh, Washington, D.C., you go to a museum of art, or Chicago has a really nice one, you go there, and you see this high art. And high art, you just put it on display. That's all you do with it. You admire it. Now, God does want to put us on display, but we're not just display pieces. We actually work. Uh, functional art has to do with, like, a beautiful vase or a beautiful vase, however you pronounce that. And it's beautiful. It's ornately decorated. And it is decorative, but you can also still pour your drink out of it. Or it's like a a beautiful, gorgeous, handmade, fine-crafted, solid wood musical instrument. I got on the internet last night, and I just started sort of looking up YouTube videos on fine-crafted wood instruments like two hours later, you know how that goes, and I was looking at these uh, Olsen guitars. So, so there are some very famous people that play Olsen guitars, and they're made in Minneapolis, and they're just the most beautiful, gorgeous guitars. Mm, I wish I had $20,000 so I could just get one, just extra laying around, and they're beautiful, but man, James Taylor, famous James Taylor, so the first time I played one, I struck it, and it just, that, that instrument just sang. I mean, it was just beautiful. And this is what poema is. Poema is functional art. It's beautiful to look at. It is a nice display piece, but listen, it works. It's functional. 
it has a utilitarian purpose. So we are, God, we are what God has made us, and God has made us to do something. And God's work is creation. So we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now the word creation here, as Paul applies it in this context, is really a callback to Genesis 1. The idea is John 1.1. God has created us in Christ Jesus. So the idea here is this is the work of God. It's no one else's work. No one could take credit for this work because it's God's work. Uh, Jesus was sitting in a house, and he was sitting in a house. I was reminded by uh, Dan Brannigan from the first service that it was actually Peter's house. Thank you, Dan. And it was the largest home in that town, and archaeologists have, think they found it, and it was just packed. That home was just packed to the gills with people who were there. And so outsiders, people who were late to the meeting, could not get to Jesus. So there was a family who decided they, they had this friend, uh, and he was a paralytic. He was paralyzed from birth. And they wanted to get him to Jesus so Jesus could heal him. Being apparently very impatient for just the meeting to end and them to run into Jesus in town, uh, they went up the steps. Those homes were built with side steps up to the roof. Um, and so people would go up on the roof at certain months and it would just be cooler up there. And so they went up there and those, those, uh, uh, those ceilings were usually made with mud and wattle, which means they were just sort of mud and sticks and you could kind of tear through them pretty with, without too much effort. And so they just kind of start digging up this roof, and then they lower this guy on his cart, on his cot, somewhere near Jesus. Now, I think Jesus thought this was hilarious. <laughs> like, I think he just laughed and said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't think Peter thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I'm sure Peter's wife did not smile. She wasn't smiling. She was like, you want to fix my roof, <laughs> you know. And Jesus says, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven you. He saw their faith. Now, who's embedded in the crowd? Who heard him say that? Pharisees, Pharisees and the scribes, these rabbinic leaders. And they're just kind of smuggled back there, sitting in the crowd, looking really sour. <laughs> and Jesus can read their thoughts. And what did they think? Blasphemer. Who but God alone can forgive sins? That's what they're thinking. Jesus can read it all over their face. He can feel the vibes, man. And he says, let me ask you a question. He says, which is easier to do? Which one is, of these is easier? To tell a paralyzed man from birth to get up and walk and he does it? Or to forgive their sins? In other words, both are equally difficult. Both are equally easy for God. But so that you may know that I have the authority to do the thing that you can't see, I will do the thing that you can see. And he tells the man, get up and walk. And the man hops to his feet and goes home praising the Lord. Charismatic worshiper right there. Blam. Just, okay, so what is Jesus trying to say? There's the work of God, and there's the work of people. And this is the work of God. And Paul is very much teaching the same kind of thing right here. This is God's work. You are God's work, and this is God's work. He created us in Christ Jesus. We can't possibly take credit for this. We can't possibly claim that we're responsible for this because we are the work of God creation, new creation. And then what does God's creation do? What does His handiwork do? God's creation was made for good works. We're made to do stuff, made to look like Jesus, 
So Paul has described salvation now as resurrection from the dead and restoration to God's family. People are dead. They can't make themselves alive. People are exiled. They can't restore themselves to right relationship. He's described salvation as freedom from captivity to sin. People are imprisoned and condemned. They can't stop this runaway train called the human experience. No one can do that. He now describes salvation in terms of creation and recreation. So just as the worlds were called into being in Genesis 1, now the believer has new life, is regenerate in the Lord, regenerated. And we are God's handiwork, and by nature, we work. By nature, we do what Jesus would do. If God made clocks, they would tick the time away, the minutes and hours of the day. If God made guitars, they would play a beautiful tune when struck. If God made cars, they would fire up and move when driven. And if God makes a Christian, that Christian loves and lives and tells the truth the way Jesus did. Amen? God has called us. We are his work, and God has made us to do something in the world. He's made us to do something in the world. I'm going to tell you just a few things that he's made us to do. Matthew 5, 16 says, Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and, and give glory to your Father in heaven. What is he talking about here? He's telling the disciples, be, be salt and light. Be salt in a flavorless, dead, bland world. A world that's trying to extract every little pleasure it can out of life. You be salt. You show them what it's like to be a disciple of me. And be light in a darkened world. Be light in a darkened world. You know, we have an outreach team here, and the mission of our outreach team is to encourage and provide opportunities for believers at Christ Community Church to develop relationships with non-believers outside the walls of this church with the ongoing hope of evangelization and discipleship. We want you to make relationships, to cultivate relationships with people who don't know Jesus yet in the hopes that they will come to know Jesus. We are to be salt and we're to be light in a darkened world. We want every person within a 50-mile radius, we want every single person, as many as, as possible, as many as we can, to have at least one contact with a Christian, one person that they know who is a Bible-believing, born-again, grace-filled Christian so that they could become like Christ, so that they can come to know Jesus and be discipled to become like Jesus. So be salt and be light. The other good work that we're called to do in Scripture, at least one other one, is Titus 2.7. I'll read you a couple of passages from here. He says, make yourself an example of good works and integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that the, any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. What's, who's he talking to? He's talking to Titus. Titus is a pastor. And he's saying, hey, listen, as a pastor, as a teacher, as a small group leader, as a person who leads other people, have integrity. Let your life be like Christ. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching so that no one can accuse us of wrong. And then we also have the good work of godly living. Verses 11 through 14, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared 
bringing salvation for all people. That's exactly what we've been talking about. The grace of God that has appeared bringing us salvation. Praise God. What does it do? It instructs us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. So this same grace that saves you also trains you. The same grace that saves you also instructs you to live in such a way that is godly before your neighbors and your peers. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. We are a people who are eager to look just like Jesus, to look just like Jesus. So if God made a Christian, (laughs) if God makes a Christian, he makes that Christian and that believer to live and to love and to look like Jesus. Amen? We are his workmanship, folks. And this is what he's making us. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are uh, pretty astonished at this news. News is so good. We don't even, at first, know even how to take it. It's surprising and it's shocking. And, and so we thank you. We thank you for providing such, so great a salvation for us. We thank you for sending your son who died on a cross for us, for our sins, who rose from the dead so that we could know resurrection life ourselves. And if you're here this morning, would you just engage this morning in trusting reception? Just receive it. Trust it. Believe it. And embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. And God, we want to commit to you as a body God, we want to commit to you to, to do the good works that you've called us to do, that we would be exactly what you envision, exactly what you think we ought to be, which is people who look like Jesus more and more every day, and a church that loves like Jesus, and a church that cultivates the heart of Christ for those who don't know you yet. Lord, would you help us to fulfill that command? Would you help us to fulfill this? And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.